welcome to Say More on That, a podcast for academics to talk about their policy-relevant research. I'm here today with Christine Slaughter, a PhD candidate in the Department of Political Science at the University of California, Los Angeles, uh, who is expected to defend her dissertation in June 2021. Her dissertation is titled, quote, quote, No Strangers to Hardship, African Americans, Inequality, and the Politics of Resilience, which develops a theory and measurement of racial resilience. Christine's primary research interests include political behavior and political psychology, race and ethnicity politics, and poverty. The second stream of research focuses specifically on black women voters and intersectionality. Christine's dissertation is currently supported by the Ford Foundation Dissertation Fellowship, the Institute of American Cultures, and the Ralph J. Bunch Center for African American Studies at UCLA, as well as the National Science Foundation Dissertation Development and Improvement Grant. Christine also holds an MA in political science from UCLA. Prior to coming to UCLA, she graduated with a BA in political science and comparative women's studies from Spelman College, a historically black women's college in Atlanta, Georgia. She's also a former UNCF Mellon Mays undergraduate fellow. Thanks so much for being here, Christine. Thanks for having me, Hillary. So just to get to know you as a person a little bit better before we dive into your fascinating research, can you tell us what book you're reading now? Oh, that's a great question. Um, right now, I'm reading um, From Here to Equality by um, Sandy Darity and Kristen Mueller, or Miller, I believe is her last name. Um, and it's about basically the argument for uh, reparations and why um, that's something that should be implemented uh, nationally to um, advance the economic status of African Americans um, who are descendants of slaves. So I've been reading that um, for leisure, not much of a leisure read, um, but that's what I've been working through um, for the past two weeks. Oh, that sounds like such a great book and very on brand. Um, right. So what's one thing that you are just unreasonably particular about? I'm going to say um, that I like to type my manuscripts in Avenir Next. So I am still, like, I work best in Microsoft Word, and I like to change the fonts to kind of represent the stages of the draft that I'm in. So I've actually, like, developed this, like, really fun thing where it's, like, I can look at different parts of a manuscript and kind of see where I am based on the That's something I'm very particular about. That is a super cool hack. I love that so much. Um, what is your, your final draft font? Final draft, it has to go back into times. Okay. Um, but I really like Garamond. I use Comic Sans when I'm like editing. Um, Garamond is just when I want to feel fancy. Oh, Garamond, um, that is a regal font. Yes, yes, yes. No, I... Um, you know, at UCLA, well, everywhere in the discipline, a lot of folks use LaTeX, and that's very really cool, but I like Microsoft Word for the ability to, like, easily change fonts and, and keep keep going with that. So that's something I'm very uh, particular about. I love that answer. Uh, I went through a font phase, which was one of my weirder, like, hobbies and obsessions, uh, and Garamond mm-hmm. and Baskerville always, to me, were, oh. like... Those are serious fonts. Look at the serif on them. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, so our, our last getting to know you question is how do you take your coffee? Uh, black and first thing in the morning, <laughs> right after waking up. I've developed a truly vile habit 
of just like instead of cleaning out the coffee pot at the end of the night, leaving whatever's in there and then microwaving that for like my first cup of the day to prepare me to make like a proper pot of coffee. Um, that's that's like the seasoning, the seasoning on the on the pot. Yes, <laughs> there. Here for it. Um, I'm glad we we share this in this final sprint to finish the dissertation. So just moving to to talk more about this, like, fascinating research that you're doing. Um, You shared with me this incredible draft paper examining African-American political behavior, where you introduce a phenomenon called racial resilience. Can you quickly define what that is and why it matters for our understanding of American politics? Um, so thank you for for reading uh, reading the paper in its uh, draft form and it's you know drawn directly from the dissertation now. Um, so I define uh, racial resilience um, as the group based attribute, um, a psychological attribute among African Americans um, that explains um, their persistence um, and reactions to adversity with perseverance. Um, And this is particularly just a way uh, to think about how African-Americans' response to hardship has been through perseverance rather than defeat. Uh, So racial resilience is something that I measure uh, using um, eight survey items. And these items together gauge African-Americans' awareness of both their subjugation, um, their awareness of economic subjugation, and their orientation towards triumph. And you know, a lot of what I've been doing is being sure to distinguish um, racial resilience from existing measures um, in the political science literature, particularly to explain African-American political behavior. And in distinguishing racial resilience as a concept, I borrow greatly from existing measures um, such as linked fate, such as group consciousness, um, that that talk about or that explain how African-Americans or generally any group's um, solidarity is important for their outlook on politics. Um, so racial resilience at its core is just a way to characterize, again, African-Americans' awareness of subjugation, but also their orientation towards triumph and perseverance. I love this paper because you tie individual political behavior to collective experiences and the history of institutionalized racism in the United States. I'm curious if you can talk to us about in what ways do you think the field's obscuring of the history of racial repression in the U.S. uh, and the communities that have developed around that experience has limited the field of um, American studies generally? So I think when we think about racial repression um, in the United States, and particularly how political science has grappled um, with the questions, I am very unsatisfied with how you know, it's a lot of amnesia around the events that have happened in this country and how they, you know, bear on African-Americans, not just political behavior, but well-being. Um, so a part of what I want to do is force us to really reckon with how not just current day um, instances impact political behavior. So not just, you know, here's how I see myself as a partisan or here's, you know, my, my income. What are the, what's the long-standing relationship between individuals and the political system, and how does that influence their behavior? So prior to this work, um, I did work on looking at the role of intergenerational poverty among African Americans, and what you know the measure of intergenerational poverty, and also thinking about racial resilience, is again to move us past our current 
you know, in time political assessment of political behavior, right? It's not just something that happens today. It's a, it's a manifestation of a long phenomenon over time. Um, so part of, I think, why this is different, you know, well, not different, but how it takes a, a fresh perspective on what we've done in political science is that, again, sometimes there's just a little bit, you know, to look at each election as its own its own phenomenon. Like, we don't really look across to kind of see what those patterns are over time. And I think that thinking about resilience to adversity, you know, is something that helps us really flesh out, you know, how do we see groups behaving over time, but also how does this impact uh, behavior? So moving to some of the policy implications of your research and this idea of racial resilience more generally, you find that racial resilience is a better explanatory factor for engaging in high-risk political behavior than partisanship is. I'm curious what you think that means for the prospect of mobilizing voter turnout among African Americans. And I'm also curious, you know, how you see your research and this dynamic um, playing out in the recent elections in Georgia. Oh, yeah, that's that's a great question. Um, So, yeah, so I will say um, I did find that the effects of racial resilience were um, withstood on the effects of partisanship but also ideology, um, education, income, or standard demographic measures. I mean, I think this finding tracks with some of the recent work um, of black political, black political scientists um, who have really studied how the measure of ideology and the measure of partisanship don't completely track on to African-Americans' experiences as we compare them to white Americans. So even like the, the standard measure of partisanship Asking, you know, if someone is a Democrat or a Republican, we know that there's so much variation within that for African Americans who identify as Democrats. So I think part of that, maybe the bit of measurement, is why we don't see that the um, partisanship variable pops as compared to racial resilience. But also, we can say that this African Americans may think differently in terms of their politics. Maybe it's not so much about what the political parties are doing or how um, close one identifies or how strong or intensely one identifies as a partisan, but maybe it's more about how African-Americans perceive of the group and the group's influence um, within the political realm. So I think that as we, um, you know, if we think about the Georgia elections, particularly um, the special election, we know that a lot of the folks that were mobilizing on the ground don't do so, you know, starting off thinking about themselves as Democrats. So like thinking about um, a lot of the black women organizers in the South, like the party, the Democratic Party is not organizing the South in the way that we see um, the organizers, particularly the folks on the ground doing, like we don't see, um, we don't necessarily see a lot of investment into black people by the Democratic Party in the South, particularly thinking about Georgia. We see organizers on the ground doing that work. So I think that as um, the, the South in its history with the Democratic Party I think that it's important to, to keep in mind how that's not at the top of mind for a lot of African-Americans and particularly factors such as resilience, such as linked fate, um, such as collective identity can reign supreme um, as we think about what motivates people to engage in different behaviors or not. That leads, like one is so fascinating, but that leads really well into my last question, which is, you know, I'm just curious about how you anticipate that the racial inequities that have characterized the United States response to the COVID-19 pandemic 
um, and the renewed effort to limit voting rights that have characterized the past four years or so will affect American politics through this mm. mechanism of racial resilience? Hmm. No, that's, that's an interesting question. I think a lot of folks have commented on how the realities of COVID-19 like lay bare a lot of the existing like structural inequalities that were already in place, right? That we see, you know, African Americans are not getting vaccinated, nor are um, Latinos getting vaccinated at the rates um, that compared to white Americans. Um, but thinking about particularly how this might impact politics, I guess the one thing that I've latched onto is a lot of the mobilization and some predominantly black areas around evictions and around um, rent control and rent reform, or particularly some rent relief, right? And, and, you know, the fact that many people are not working, many African-Americans are in service um, positions. And I think about how, you know, when we think about racial resilience, I don't necessarily position it as something that can overcome a lot of the structural inequalities, again, that COVID-19 is laying there. So what happens, right? Like, what, what might happen to many Black neighborhoods when we think about if, folks are going to be evicted at higher rates. That's potentially going to impact the 2022 election as we think about what these neighborhoods might look like and if Black people are being displaced from their homes. So I guess thinking about racial resilience, it's not something that I expect that can overcome some of the more structural conditions, but I do think individuals who have a higher sense of racial resilience may be more willing um, to continue to participate in politics, even in the midst of Again, these structural inequalities that are um, that are coming to the fore. But particularly when I think about what impact this might have, I'm, I'm thinking about housing inequalities. I'm uh, thinking about our standard measure in political science of income. How folks with lower incomes this year may still be mobilized to to engage um, in the 2022 election moving forward. But also, I, I think about how moving forward we'll have to include measures, or I'll have to include measures within the book project, thinking about the role of trust. Because I think for many African Americans this year, um, we're seeing a renewed sense of distrust in the federal government. And I think for racial resilience, this is something that we might want to consider. What happens when, you know, I'm my, my argument is that racial resilience needs individuals to be motivated um, to engage in politics. But when, when individuals are distrustful, of the federal government, how might we see that um, participation play out in other spaces? Um, so in the paper, I look at different measures of um, political engagement, not just voting in elections, but attending a community organizing meeting, attending a protest demonstration with, when there are known risks. And I find the individuals that are higher in racial resilience are more likely to engage in these acts. So I do think that COVID-19, again, will call into question how individuals' sense of trust in government um, influences their participation. And I also think it will um, influence how individuals, particularly who are um, experiencing financial insecurity, um, are engaged in the political process. And also folks who are displaced out of their homes, um, I think that might have some, some influence. Well, I don't think it, it will have influence and it will be something that folks will, particularly um, the political parties will have to address as we see people very, um, very much following a lot of the debates around the stimulus relief, uh, well, the COVID-19 relief through the stimulus bills, I'm seeing that, okay, the government can do a lot of these things that we were totally it couldn't do, right? Like inject cash um, into the economy. 
also, you know, the, what's going on now around um, relieving student loan debt. These are things that I think folks who are have a higher sense of racial resilience may follow um, in ways that we may not have seen previously um, in other administrations, but also in other non-pandemic times. That's really fascinating. And I, I get I'm asking you to like peer into a, a crystal ball, um, which is impossible. Um, but I do think that there are some things, you know, the, the past is prologue in many of these um, situations. Like if we think about times of crisis for African-Americans, you know, this pandemic is one of many pandemics that folks are experiencing. It's not just, you know, health that's being called into question. You know, it's still the ongoing police brutality um, that folks are experiencing. It's still education, particularly thinking about schooling um, for Black children. How might we expect, you know, folks who are near, you know, 18, you know, entering the adulthood, how might, we, how might their political socialization um, look much different than previous generations? So just thinking about how, you know, this, this movement of crisis really isn't limited to the health pandemic. Um, it's, it's multiple pandemics occurring. And I think racial resilience is a way to think about not the deficit, like what do people lack, but like how do people's orientation um, to, to triumph, but they're also their awareness of subjugation. How might that influence their outlook uh, moving forward? So I guess thinking about my research, this may bring in, you know, greater look at generational differences, right? Because we may think folks who are coming of age at this time may be differently oriented than someone, um, you know, who lived through the civil rights movement, that, that type of crisis that, that many folks experience. Yeah. I mean, I'm going to stop. No, it's, it's so, <laughs> so fascinating. And like the, the intergenerational transfer of, you know, experiences and stories and mm-hmm. narratives is one that's, you know, so important, but can be so mm-hmm difficult to study systematically um you know like uh, the American Jewish experience for example like my father's <laughs> Jewish like there is this kind of like strong kind of narrative history where like you know the the struggles of like the Jewish people as it manifested in my family's experience was passed to me generationally and it influences <clears throat> my political behavior to some degree um but, you know obviously it's not as acute because uh, I'm in the United States and not somewhere in Eastern Europe where we were chased out of, right? Um, right. And so this this idea of racial resilience is so fascinating to me as, as a mobilizing force because it pulls in, as you were saying, you know, trusting government, narratives of triumph and like a, a commitment to, you know, furthering the cause that is, you know, so inspiring and so critical to understand. Um so I was so thrilled to read your, your research, and I'm so excited um, to see the dissertation that comes out of it. No, no, thank you. Um, and I, I think going back to kind of affirm what, what you said is that, you know, I think racial resilience, as I'm looking at it now, I focus on the Black American experience. But if we think about a multitude of groups um, or, you know, racial, ethnic groups, religious groups that have experienced um, persecution or marginalization within the United States and, and abroad, you know, there there is a sense of resilience for folks who triumph in the in the odds stacked against them. And I think that is how I've tried to distinguish 
from racial resilience, from an individual sense of resilience. Because a lot of the work in psychology, I actually meant to say this earlier um, in the first question um, that you asked, but a lot of the work on resilience focuses on individual um, individual adversity, right? So like I experienced some type of harm done towards me. Um, so let's say like, you know, I have financial troubles. Um, a lot of the work looked at military members. Um, a lot of earlier work on resilience looked at um, kids in school context, like a, de- a developmental approach to resilience, um, but not many takes of resilience within psychology, at least what I've read, look at kind of this group-based experience of adversity connected to race, ethnicity, um, marginality. And that's kind of a part of what I want to do um, with looking at racial resilience is not just to say, you know, I'm an individual that experienced adversity, but I'm a part of a group that had this socializing experience of setbacks, of hardships. How does that influence uh, my approach and orientation to politics where it requires so much perseverance? Um, You know, like registering to vote, attending a protest demonstration, those aren't easy things to do. They have costs. And like what motivates people to take up those costs? Uh, I think when we connect it to a group experience and a group experience of adversity, we can find that resilience and that perseverance. And I think that's kind of what's um, important for how racial resilience impacts um, American politics, one, through its behavioral consequences. So I'll stop there. That's a much better answer, Hillary, to what I said. No, it's, it's so like interesting. It, like, it touches on so many like, important aspects of political science that we don't really grapple with, um, you know, like, not only, like, minority political experiences, but, like, the role of community, the role of identity, the role of, like, you know, what process you see yourself being a broader part of and furthering, um, so, no, this is absolutely fascinating, um, and, yeah, thank you so much for your time. No, thank you. Thank you for the invitation.